All right, let's turn to that Bible then, please, to Acts chapter 4. We are in the process of a series called The Unstoppable Gospel. This is the third message of that series. We've got a title for this morning's message. I call it The True Story of Boldness. For a moment, let me recap so that we can understand and hear once again about where we're really at in this message series. In Acts chapter 1, which we looked at a few weeks ago, this whole disposition, this whole historical narrative is launched really in chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus has been spending 40 days with the disciples on and off, talking to them, telling them about how the Old Testament is all about him and how he responds to the Old Testament. And then just before he ascends, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. This is a shock for these guys, because they had thought, even now the disciples didn't get it, they had thought, this is amazing, he died, he rose again, now we'll take on the Romans. They're waiting for him to turn around and still do something with the Roman nation that's about to be king. And then he actually says to the listener, actually, I'm going. And after saying this, he doesn't even go. The cloud comes and takes him up. But he instructs them, you're going to be the ones that are going. You're going to be the ones that proclaim the gospel. And these men that are gathered there in that moment, these disciples, are going to be the ones that representative that the power of God will come on in the first work of the Holy Spirit and through them as people get saved for the glory of the gospel that the gospel will indeed go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Well, who knows what these guys would have been? As I mentioned, they probably would have got fear for a start. What do you mean? What do you mean we're going to be the ones? Where are you going? Then Acts chapter 2, we find them waiting together with the 120 the people that have already become Christians in effect. They're waiting to receive this Holy Spirit, whatever that's going to be. And they're praying, and they're crying out to God for grace. And all of a sudden, in the other room, they hear a sound like a rushing wind, tongues of fire start to come out, and they start to land on their head. And these guys and girls are overwhelmed with being filled with the Holy Spirit. They give you gifts in other languages and other languages, and they burst out the doors, and they go into the temple courts where there's thousands of people with different languages. And they start to proclaim the glories of God. And people start to respond, and how on earth are you going to start speaking in our language? God had given them the gift of their languages. So all the different languages of the earth are being proclaimed the glories of God in. Peter gets up and explains that this is God's doing. He proclaims to them the gospel, and 3,000 people are saved on that day. Imagine still have life groups of that number. In what a thrill to see all these people come in one go and come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 3,000 added to baptize in the single day. The early church then in Jerusalem was formed. We find out at the end of chapter 2 that these guys, this church, this new community of believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to one another in fellowship, in breaking bread together in prayer, in care. People as a congregation, a new found church, rich people were going away and selling their homes and then bringing all the money to the apostles' feet and saying, listen, distribute it as any have in need. This church became a family in the moment and they were all in energy, in finances, in serving, in love. Their lives have been turned upside down and this new community now is beginning to care for them. 
they were evangelistic too. They were sharing the gospel day by day. And in chapter 2, verse 47, we read, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I would have loved to have seen that. 3,000 added in a day. And then this group of people who are loving one another are still turning their friends about Jesus and day by day. People getting added, people getting saved. Next chapter 3, then the good times keep on coming. There's a great, great healing. Peter prays for this dude and he gets up and he starts to walk. And that provides an opportunity for Peter to once again proclaim the glories of the glories of the gospel. And hundreds once again begin to get saved. But in chapter 4, for the first time in this glorious book of Acts, we see opposition to the gospel. The gospel begins to be opposed. So let's follow on the story in chapter 4. We're going to read verse 1 at the end of verse 3. Peter at this point is proclaiming the gospel in the temple. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power? About what name did you do this? And Peter, the Lord of the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of them, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and the sin they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. To see the man who was healed standing beside them, nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that notable sign that we can fall through them is evidence of all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they have further threatened them, they let them go. Finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all the praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed before 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together with God. They said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and 
see it, everything in it. Into the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles pray? And the king of the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. But truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan and predestined to take place. And now, Look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all bodies. While you stretch out your hand to heal, signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they pray, the place in which they gather together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with bodies. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word. And as we sit under your word today, Lord, we come alive in our eyes and in our hearts afresh. Father, would you help us to grasp what is being taught here and be mesmerized by what is being taught here and then leave this room with boldness in our service. Lord, your word is alive and active. So we encourage you right now, our in Jesus' name. One of the things I really love and enjoy in life, I've got lots of things, but one of the things I really enjoy is that of watching or reading a really good true story. I think it's great when you come across a story and it's true and you're mesmerized by what is taking place. Sometimes you read them, sometimes you watch them. So, obviously, a few weeks ago when you were playing to America, particularly with three other guys, rather than your wife, you don't want to chat. You know, you don't want to chat. You're all in a row. And you turn the face around, there's Jesse. One time he turns his face down, and you're like, I like that with my wife. You don't want my money. So, you're talking to his brothers. You want to be, we're talking movie time. That's what we're talking about on the plane. So, I get on the plane, you know, quickly, I said, I'm just this isn't a talking journey. So, we're going to be watching the movies for 24 hours, which is like a dream. But particularly for me, I'm looking straight up for truths, true stories you can get engrossed in. So it's Qantas, and I go to the people there, and it's like hundreds of movies, all the true ones I've all seen. So I had to go with like World War Z, and like, you know, escape from the White House, to pretend they were true. But it wasn't very effective. You know, I much prefer true stories. I love good, true stories. And this story that we have in front of us today is exactly that. It is an outstanding, true story. We're not just reading about some fantasy or something that may have happened. We're reading about something that really did happen 2,000 years ago. We're reading history. This is like a newspaper in front of us, spoken by God to communicate to us exactly what happened 2,000 years ago and what a good, true story is. It's a story of opposition. It's a story of hope. It's a story of hell. One of the things I love about it the most is without doubt, this is a story that has ongoing implications for every one of us in this room today. That's what makes it so exciting. We're not just sitting in and listening to something that happened so long ago and we think, oh, that's nice. We're listening to something that happened long ago that had implications for us today. God wants to communicate through this word to our ears as Christians today. So the Bible still speaks to that. 
these chapters are still speaking about. And in a sentence, this is what these two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, teach us. In one sentence, they teach us that although proclaiming Jesus in a world that doesn't know him is hard, there is always hope and help for us in him. This great story of opposition and hope and help, three very clear different scenes of opposition and hope and help, has one defining truth attached to it, that although proclaiming Jesus in a world that doesn't know his heart, the world that we live in still today, it's hard. There is hope and there is help for us in it. There is hope and there is help for every Christian in the world. In Jesus Christ, as we have gone about the task of witnessing as he's called So let's attend then to this story. Three sections. Here's the first section. Number one, the opposition. And this is the first scene going from verse 1 to verse 22 of chapter 3. And the background to this scene is the entirety of chapter 3. See, in chapter 3, Peter prays for a lame beggar at the temple gate. And this guy is healed. Peter has been spending time with the people of God. Peter has people get out of here. If you're a pastor, you're going to have to get busy trying to help these folks. And start discipling these folks. And start creating some structures for these folks so they can grow in the name of Jesus Christ. He's been busy doing that. But at the end of one afternoon, Peter and John decide that they're going to go to the temple to pray and cry out to God for grace. Well, on the way, they get to the beautiful gate, which is part of the temple. And then this guy there, he's lame. He's over 40 years old, the scripture tells us, in the land of good. And he's begging. He's looking at them for arms, which is just money and finance and help. This is what he's probably done every day for most of his life. His friends have carried him there. He's standing there and he's waiting saying, Can you help me? Well, Peter and John go up to him and say, Listen, look at me. We haven't got any money. And that was a bit of disappointment for him in that moment, because that's what he did. We don't have any money. But what we do have, we do for you. And they pray for this guy. And in a moment, in an instant, this guy who has been laid from birth is healed. His ankles and his feet are made strong. Dr. Luke actually uses the word in the Greek that isn't used anywhere else in the Bible, proving that he's indeed a doctor. Because he uses this technical term of how his ankles were strengthened. And what the Bible tells us is that this moment, as this guy comes alive and his body is healed, he is like Tim. You know what I'm saying? This guy is so excited about what he's going to come in the first eight. This, this is a Tigger moment. So it goes to chapter, chapter 3, verse 8. I love it. It amuses me. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Can you imagine that down to the You pray for this guy, he gets healed. And then you're literally clinging onto you, going, Whoa! Yes! That's what's going on here outside the temple. It is all going on because this guy is coming alive. And he's absolutely amazing. No one's had to teach this guy what responsive worship should be. He's doing it naturally because he's been healed. And he's a lesson for us part in that. You want to know exactly what worship looks like? It probably looks like that. No one's teaching that. He's just going, I've been healed! My life is dramatically changed. What are you going to let them go? Verse 11, there's another Greek word that, that says, well, he clung. This, this word clung is to do with being in the house rest. So he's literally holding on to people and going, I mean, then you go out, and he's still rejoicing and leaving, going inside. So they walk into the temple, 
and they walk into the, the temple gates themselves, they walk inside the portico, which is a large colonnaded area on the eastern wall of the temple. And when you're constantly clinging on to them, they're going, oh, boo, and praising God. Literally, hundreds of people in the temple at that point want to know what's going on. They recognize the guy that's been healed, and they all want to know what's going on. Hundreds of men are running towards Peter and John. And so they start to proclaim the gospel. They start to explain to them what is actually not place. And they start to explain to them in great boldness and grace that they need to repent of their sin. That they had in and of themselves killed Jesus Christ, the author of life. And that through him there is still life in his name because he has risen from the dead. He uses this opportunity to explain to them the one who has healed this man is Jesus whom you killed. But there is life in his name. Because Jesus not only died three days later, he rose again. And he rose again to give life and that in abundance. And if you'll put your faith in him as your Lord Savior, then you indeed will be saved. Hundreds of them in that moment, in effect, get to their knees and ask Jesus Christ to be the Lord Savior. This is revival going on here in the temple. In chapter 1, verse 15 of Acts, we see that there are 120 Christians. In chapter 2, verse 21, we then read that there are 3,000 of them. By chapter 4, verse 4, it says that there are 5,000 men. Which means that there are at least 10,000 plus men and women and children and all of them responded to Jesus Christ. This is revival going on here in Jerusalem. But then comes the start of chapter 4, the opposition. Up until now, there hasn't been any opposition. They receive the Holy Spirit, they go out, they start telling people about Jesus, people are getting saved, everybody's happy, everybody's happy, everybody's cheering. But now they encounter some guys who are not happy. They're going to start to impose the unstoppable gospel. Let's read it again, verse 4, chapter, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. <coughs> they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus resurrection from the dead. Peter proclaiming that Jesus has come alive and that there is life to be had in his name. And while many people are absolutely thrilled by that news and come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there are some that hated that news. That's these guys, the priests, those men charged with the responsibility of performing various rites in the temple. They're not happy about this at all. Jesus was a pain in the neck to them when he was alive. They don't want to know his name again, thank you very much, particularly not in these points. The captain of the temple guard, basically the chief of police for the temple, the one who's in rank is only second to the high priest. He's really angry about it. His responsibility to keep the law and order in the temple. He will have flashbacks in this moment to the moment when Jesus came in with a whip and started driving out the money changers. He doesn't want to know anything about Jesus, thank you very much. We killed him. Don't you stop. And then the Sadducees, the liberal theologians of the day that represented the wealthy, the aristocratic families in Jerusalem, men who were worldly in their thinking, who were liberal in their theology, and worked hard to keep tight and close to the Roman government 
to address their own political and economic interests. That's what they were interested in. And so the thought of Jesus and anyway being affected again, this is going to help at all. Because revival can break out, and that's going to affect me as a statue. So you can shut up. So this part of the statues, the captain of the guard, and the priest came upon them, correctly in order. You know what that means? They jumped them. That's what they did. They jumped on Peter and John and told them to shut up. We killed Jesus. Don't you stop. And so they literally jumped on Peter and John. They arrested them. They brought them in jail. And they brought them in jail because they're going to have to keep them overnight. Because overnight, once they keep them overnight in the morning, the great Jewish council comes together, the Sanhedrin, that would meet once in the morning, every morning. So they need to be kept and held in jail, ready so they can be tried by the Sanhedrin. Same Sanhedrin that Jesus did. Well, this is then what happens next. After one night in jail, is that we're given time to figure out what the end of the life is. Chapter 4, verse 5, the end of On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Agnes and the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priest. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? My friends, we must understand as we try and grasp this scene that is unfolding in the temple. This is not a friendly inquiry. This is an interrogation. This is not a group of brothers who are all, you know, how can we help you? I think they may have been misunderstood. They're a terrible They want to be honest, they probably intentionally want to kill this one. These men have been dragged before the Jewish council, the great Sanhedrin, the highest authority that would take place in this culture. They may have accepted one members, they may Sadducees and Pharisees of the entire high priestly family. And this 71 member council would set themselves up on a height in a great semi-circle, at different heights. And then when it says that they sent Peter and John before them, what that means is, you stand here, we will stand here. And you're out of This was an intimidation of the They're seeking to intimidate Peter and John in this room to show up. And so they asked them through this inquiry, through this interrogation, by what name did you do this? What are you doing? They're seeking to intimidate them so that they will shut up. You know, one of the calls is a message from Peter where he tells some credit. Filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 8, he begins to preach the gospel. And as you read it, you realize he's not just giving an account. He's seeking to share the gospel with them that they need this. He's seeking to preach to the Jewish council in this moment, not to give them penance, but because he loves them. And he wants them to hear about Jesus. And so he starts to share the gospel with the very man that is seeking to intimidate him and tell him about how incredible Jesus is and what he's done and how through him there is life in his name. Does incredibly well in this moment. There's different times where I would love to insert myself in the world and probably hit him because I'd be afraid as well. But insert myself somewhere at the back and go, Yeah, I'm with him! And then I'll probably, But I'm with him! Because Peter, where do you go? 
have run. You can't help it. It's so true. And what this man has done is run is representing Christ in the face of God. But before we get ahead too ahead of ourselves, we all that. What Peter actually did, what he achieved, and how he did it. I do want us to pause for a moment and leave us before on the reality of the presence of the opposition in the Because they do present. For the first time in this book, they face granted opposition. For the first time, post the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, there are men that seek to oppose the gospel, seeking to quiet the gospel. And it's important, I think, that we do linger on that opposition. Because in all reality, that happened in the real world. That happened in our world, albeit in Jerusalem. 2,000 years ago, this is how the gospel was being opposed. The truth is, my friends, the gospel is still being opposed today, isn't it? Maybe it's different. But we live in the real world just like these guys. And the gospel is being opposed exactly the same way. It's more varied than it was. There's no doubt that we've been opposed in Christianity, that we've been opposed in our faith, and that the gospel is being opposed. See, sometimes I think in our world we face violent opposition. Where in Sri Lanka, or Iraq, or Iran, you would be opposed in saying the gospel. In Iran, this recently, there's an incident where a pastor was arrested and thrown in jail and was awaiting the death penalty because of what he believed. Because he was proclaiming Jesus Christ in the That is opposition to the gospel. That is violent opposition to the gospel. That is very much like what we see in the book of Acts where people go on and start to be put on stakes and come in tower and set the light to them because of their faith. There was violent opposition then, and in some parts of our world today, there is violent opposition too. Let's be honest, I thank God that I don't live in one of those places. Does it not make you grateful? It makes me thrilled that the brothers and sisters are power in this place. And we want to be praying for crying out to God for faith in them and all this faith. It also makes me grateful that we live in a country where that's good. The gospel isn't being opposed in that way. But we'd be naive to think that it's not being opposed at all. What I've thought about this week, I think here in Australia, I think the gospel is being opposed by globally. And silently, I think there is a vocal opposition to the gospel taking place in our city. It's the vocal opposition that the teen has to undergo when they share with their classmates about Jesus Christ and they start to mock them and laugh at them and say, You really believe that, you freak? It's the gospel opposition that the employee has to go through and they're labeled the bigot for believing that Jesus Christ is the only way. And everybody starts to back away from them. What do you mean? That's so intolerant. How can you believe? But well, isn't your response intolerant? Well, that's not the point. Your point is intolerant. We don't want anything to do with it. It's the vocal opposition that a family member gets when they're reaching out to their parents or reaching out to their kids. And they tell them about Jesus and how they believe it. And they just laugh at them as if to say, Do you really believe that? I pity you. Do you give money to the church? Do you serve the church? What a waste of your life. Does that sound familiar? We face a lot of opposition in our city to the gospel. Or we're not going to be beaten by the faith. But vulnerably, we will be opposed. The truth is, the more I've thought about it this week, 
submit to you, we face a silent opposition as well. And the silent opposition, I think, simply comes from this family. The silent opposition comes from the family of apathy. Apathy to be lost. No interest. So they're not hard, not an emo, they're just not interested. Is it quiet? So you start to share the gospel with somebody. I remember a couple of years ago when I was in Wales, and there was a couple that we had gone to the school. A number of years ago, we didn't know a song, we didn't know any other words, and to our shame. And so we really changed that. About 2006, and we realized our lives were going to be different. Our lives were not just be spent serving the church, and our lives were going to be missionary as well. So we went through this radical process of rearranging our lives as a family. And I remember we went to the first TTA meeting, because I thought, how many people know? And we have to join the, the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association. And so we went along to this thing, I was treasurer, I can't even add up, but I'm a treasurer, can we do that? And I said, well, can you help us on the disc? I'm like, sure, I'll see you there. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to go. I'm not trying to get to know people. I'm like, how can I get to know people? And at the end, it's embarrassing because I can't dance. But at this point, he says, oh, you know, I know she can't dance. I'm like, no, I can't. And he's like, oh, this is good. So we, we struggled with friendship. And then a few days, he invited us over his home, and so we were, we were out there and I was home with him and his wife, and I thought, well, this is a chance for gospel, let's, 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 let's give it a go. And so I said to him, you know, you know what, um, do you ever feel like he's laying out in your blood and light like something this thing? He just said, no, really. <laughs> And you know, I've got great wife, I've great kids, you know, I've provided them money, I love my life, I love what I do. Thanks for coming in. Okay. You know, it's one of those awful moments where you're like, what now? That's the attitude that I think we face in this city day after day after day. Where it says in the Bible, it's hard for the rich people to get to heaven. I bet you that's not because they love you, it's because they can entertain themselves. They don't need you. When well, you're reaching out in Newport to Betis, and there are kids that are kids of prostitutes, there is a felony there that you can apply the gospel to. When you're reaching out to people that are rich, you can't get to go with somebody because they're on their yacht. You've got to find a different way of communicating. Because what you receive is happening. I'll be going this fast. Yeah. No, we're going that. And you have such a lovely family. <laughs> <laughs> We can face violent opposition in our world, we can face vocal opposition in our world, and then we also face silence. And in is, I think, we can cultivate in our lives fear and unbelief. Fear of what somebody might say. If we say in our workplace, or we say in our sports club, or we say in our college, what we really stand for. Fear of what they might think and how they might think other things about us. But when you look at it in the whole other day, you think, what am I afraid of? This is so stupid. Or when you're in a home, that fear is real. But also unbelief. As you reach out to that family member or that friend that seemingly has got everything, you've told them to go for a thousand times, they're still not interested, and you think, how many ever get again? Because they don't seem to need Jesus. And I'm trying to help them see that they do, they have no recognition that they're sick because their lives need freedom. I think it can cultivate fear and unbelief in our hearts. And it's when we realize that opposition, albeit different, 
But the same in headline to what we see here in chapter 4, that this book has to come up. Because this story doesn't end with opposition. It now continues with hope. Hope in the midst of opposition. Hope to reflect the story. See, as Peter stood before the Sanhedrin in this moment, he does incredibly well. He proclaims Christ with him crucified. He tells them about Jesus boldly and loudly. You would expect and hope that in this moment they would be hitting their knees in repentance, realizing what they've done to Jesus and what Jesus has done for them. But they don't. In fact, they actually want to seriously punish Peter and John. But they can't. And they can't because just beyond this council, there are still people running around in the temple going, Woo! Woo! My God, my God! There's still this dude running around telling everybody about he's been healed, and there's still hundreds of people who have got saved. And so, in this small council room, they want to punish these guys, but they can't because whenever we do that, that's going to cause problems for us, and ultimately they're playing a political game. So, all they do is warn them. They basically seem to kick their butt, and they explain to them, All right, we're letting you off this time, but we want to go over here another book. In verse 18 of chapter 4, they charged them to not mention Jesus Christ anymore. It's clear in verse 21 that that is a charge that isn't just a look if you wouldn't mind. It's a threat. You do this again, and we will come out. That's what they communicate with Peter and John. This is an outright threat of opposition. But then in chapter 4, verse 23 and 28, we have the second story of hope. See, Peter and John, as they're released, they head back to the church. They head back home to this group of people who know them and love them. Most likely, this group of people would have gathered together here to pray for them. They would have known they'd been arrested and they would have been crying out to God for grace for them. Most likely. And now Peter and John, in chapter 4, verse 23, enter into the prison. This is what happens. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people not invaded? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed from Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This is the king. This is a friend. And this is what they pray in verse 28. To do whatever your hand. Whatever your hand and your plan and your destiny they come back to this early church and they break into prayer on the news that they are going to be opposed to sharing the gospel. And they begin to cry out to God. And as they cry out to God, they begin to cry out to him about the glory that it is that Jesus Christ really is the king of the universe. That he's the one that's in control. That he really is the great lion. 
See, there is a high degree of mystery being about what's being declared in verse 28, isn't it? How does it work? How does it work that these men, Judas, Pontius Pilate, and Herod, all conspired against Jesus, and yet we can now recognize that, Lord, you were sovereign over the world? How does that work? How does it work that these men are fully responsible for what they did? But how do we look back and realize Jesus was in control all along? How does it work that God is sovereign and humans are utterly responsible? How does that work? I have no idea. I wish I did. I've got a book with something I'm very famous. I wish I could explain how that works. I do not know. But what I do know from these verses and from the rest of the Bible is that there is no mystery in the truth that Jesus Christ is the sovereign king of the universe. There is no mystery in that. He is the sovereign. He is the king of heaven and earth. Now folks, if we could just grasp this, and pray like this, like the early Christians did, I submit to you that would have a transforming effect on the hope that we have in mission. If we just realize he's in control. He's sovereign. He is the king. Oh, I wish we would get this. I hope that we get this. Because it transforms our mission in the See, the reality is, Jesus Christ really is the sovereign. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus Christ really does command our destiny. He is, as they pray here, the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in it. He is the one that breathes forth life. He is the one that created all things and spins the galaxies and pulls the stars into being and names them and sustains them so that not one is missing. He's the one that says to the Titus, This part, no good. He's the sovereign king of all. He's the one then who is in all things and ordains all things. And he is the one who, in a moment, in his power and splendor, can bring somebody from spiritual death to life. That's his role. That's what he can do. And no sin, no enemy, no opposition can stand in the face of Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. He's the sovereign. He's the master of all. If only we could get this like the early Christians got this. What a difference this makes them in the whole of their mission, realizing Jesus Christ is the King of the universe. See, in illustrated Paul, I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about this in the line of which he See, a number of weeks ago we looked at John chapter 18, when we go to the Gospel of John, and we looked at how in this book, the line of which the Lord wrote, See if there's painted for us as the rule that they became. Do you remember that? Adam is on the table. He's been sold into slavery. The white witch is there with all the hands and all the demonic forces. They bind Aslan. They shave Aslan. They beat Aslan. They drag him onto the stone table. And with an almighty shriek, the white witch takes the dragon <laughs> and plunges it, plunges it into Adlan and he dies. Adlan is the king. One roar would have stopped this process. Even this mighty boy, he could have in a moment swept them aside. He could have in a moment called them to stop all what they were doing. C.S. Lewis is gloriously painting this picture of what Jesus did when he was arrested and found and beaten and mocked 
and then put on a cross in our lives. One call for the heavenly realm to come down and you can the cross in One roar, and he can put all things to an end. Even as they mock him at Calvary, in a moment he can look back at them and from all time to his answer and address them. But it was the roar that never The great roar of the kingdom never arrived. Because it was through his silence that he was going to make it possible for us to be forgiven our sins. For us to be reconciled to God the Father, for us to be redeemed, for us to be adopted into the very family of God. But later on in the book, the line of the woman, later on, just moments after Adam is killed and the white witch moves on and all the hacks start to go to war. Susan and Lucy go to Adam and go to his dead body. And they start to just untie the different things that are around us, the ropes that are around us. And they cry over Adam because he's died. They're too small to take him anywhere. So they leave him and as they walk away, they hear all mighty and in a moment, the stone table breaks into two. There's two afraid to turn around, wondering what's happened. But eventually, they pluck up the courage to turn around, and there is Adler standing on the table as the risen one, his mane glowing, and he lets out an almighty roar in that moment. For now, the Lord does come. And Susan and Lucy get on Adler's back, and Adler is now on the moon. He's going to war against the white witch, and no one can stop him. He's prisoned again, he has defeated the white witch. So he goes into the white witch's castle, and he starts to breathe on people that have turned into stone, and they start to come back to life. He goes to war against the white witch, and no one can stand against him, and he takes people to the side. That is a picture of the of Acts. That's what Acts is all about. Adam has risen. Now the war does come, and no one stands against that. The gospel goes forward. The gospel keeps moving forward. No individual that stands against the gospel can stand in opposition against Adam's law. There's the early church and the students. So as they're sharing the gospel with people, they are aware, in and of myself, my words are so feeble. In and of myself, I'm so limited in what I communicate. But by my side is Adam, the great one. And in a moment, through a he can bring life into my friends. Through so a moment, through a look in his eye, he can bring what I perceive as spiritual death to life. Can you imagine what boldness and faith that gave them? So they pray, the Lord of the Maker of heaven and earth and the seas and all in it, the one who creates all things. Effectively saying is the Saviour, King, we trust you. Because the gospel is the Lord. Friends, it's very exciting what you know. To know that when you're talking to your friends, when you're talking to your spouses, when you're talking to your kids, when you're in your workplaces and colleges, it's not just about the way you communicate. You must share the gospel to all you can. But we're always going to be feeble, we're always going to make mistakes and share things. The pattern stands by you. And in a moment, his world is done. No apathy, no sin, no 
position is standing in his That's the moment. You know, I love this story and the way community comes back to this. The hope. But then there's something else. Now you need to finish the help. In verses 29 and 35. So there is no doubt that in part, the early Christians were empowered to preach the gospel boldly by understanding that the sovereign King of all is with them. That the great roar of his life and in a moment changed people's lives. What they've already experienced and they trust him for more. But the secret of that boldness wasn't in their mind. The secret of that boldness was in their heart. And that's what you see here in verse 29, where we are going to see the hell. Let's read it together. And now, Lord, look upon that threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, signs and wonders of the fall in the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they pray, the place in which they were gathered is gathered and shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And continued to speak the word of God to followers. See what happened? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's why they were able to continue to communicate in the followers. So have you ever wondered what the transforming effect in Peter's life was? Just two months earlier, so we're in June now, just in April. The Apostle Peter didn't even have the bottle to say that he knew Jesus to a slave. He's talking about him. What should I say? What should I do? Now, two months later, we see him standing before the mighty Sanhedrin, giving an account of what he believes with boldness and power and strength and grace. Two months of Christ. Two months! How did that happen? How did this same man be so transformed? What has happened in his life to bring about such a dramatic change? I'll tell you what's happened. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. And therein lies the secret of boldness. Is the secret of boldness our character type, that there's just some people that are a bit more bold than others? Some people are a bit louder than others? Not a bunch of Bible. That's got nothing to do with boldness. In the secret of boldness that we just have to be learned and understand, and those who really can understand are going to be bold, apparently not. Chapter 4, verse 13 is Peter and John stand before them, they recognize that they are both uneducated common men. These men are probably 19, 20 years old. They're fishermen. They probably smell of fish as they stand before these, these people. They don't know those. They walk with Jesus. But they're not studying, they're not rabbis, they're not studying in all the Old Testament, but they're standing there boldly. They're unlearned and educated. The only reason why they are in this home able to claim to be so boldly is in part because they understand that that's happening with them, but overridingly it's because they have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is giving them boldness and courage. It is a supernatural moment for them. When they're able to share their faith. You know, the good news then, by way of application, that comes with this truth, this church, is that the Holy Spirit filled the East like 2,000 years ago 
is the same Holy Spirit who is present and ready, active and eager to fill with you today. So that new people could be added. 
so that people in this moment are in coffee shops uninterested in Jesus, can be singing alongside us the praises of Jesus Christ because we proclaim the gospel to them. That's why this church exists. That's why we plan it. Why well, I have the privilege to be the senior pastor. That will always be good. We must. We must return the gospel. But as I've been quickened by this text, this is the way of as we go forward together on mission as an army, we must do so on our knees. We need to be praying. Not because we think, well, oh, surely, you know, she's probably gathered with friends and you know, your church is too. But we should gather together and pray. And we should, as individuals, spend time and time and time on our knees. Because we need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we will never bring the boldness in our workplaces, in our colleges, in our homes. We will never communicate faithfully the gospel because we're afraid. But when we spend time on our knees and we cry out to God, when you fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit, He is faithful to answer. He is a faithful Father. He will fill us with the Holy Spirit and we will go forward. My friends, we must be an army on mission. But we must be an army on mission on our knees. And here that is my hope and faith, the fruit that that will bring. The fruit I believe that will bring is that we will be an army of proclaimers to follow. If you struggle to share the gospel with your friends, with your colleagues, with your family, spend more time on your knees. Spend more time crying out for God. That's what we've done with the Bible. Because our humanity is just a We don't discuss how much we share these on people. We hit our knees as individuals and in our groups and we cry out for the place. And then we pick ourselves up and we go. God will pass our eyes on the roof. And he's finished. And in a moment, he can change people's lives. I've been alone, alone, proclaiming Jesus in the world of this dog is hard. There is hope and help for us in Him. It is hard to claim the gospel. In Jesus, there is hope. There's always with us. There's always help. So we can be united and wish more than Let's pray. For well, Lord, I thank you that you bring your glory along. You do not know the preacher that ever can. And you minister to souls. The Lord, I do sense that you have ministered to souls amongst them. You've equipped us with your word, you've equipped us with your magnificence, you've equipped us with your hope and your help. And Lord, for the lasting fruit then, you fruit the people who go forward on our knees. Not because it's what Christians do, it's because what we desperately need. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Although oh our souls long after the filling of the Holy Spirit, long after an empowering from you. And when we go more than boldly, knowing that your gospel is in Scotland, nothing is against you. The song of you. And in you, put our hope and our help. In Jesus' precious name. Thank you.